Well, it's my privilege to be able to interview Paula. Paula Fuller, our Executive Vice President of People and Culture. Uh, and uh, this is a chance for uh, me and for us to introduce Paula to the wider fellowship as well. So we're doing this in the NSC so that you all can get to know her better. Uh, but we're also going to be sharing this with the wider field in InterVarsity. So, uh, so I'm excited about this opportunity. So let's get to know Paula Fuller. Um, so uh, you have been in the movement for quite some time, serving in a variety of roles and in leadership in the movement. You've served on the board as well. Uh, I'd love to hear, and for folks to hear, how did the Lord call you to InterVarsity? I would say that God called me to InterVarsity through a series of invitations. When I was in school, I was uh, involved in a tutoring program uh, in East Palo Alto, which was a neighboring community to Stanford. And I worked with a group of people there that were amazing. And it was four years later when I found out that they were InterVarsity alum who had studied the Book of Amos, discovered God's heart for the poor. After they graduated, uh, they moved into the community and started this ministry. And so literally, it was probably about four years into the relationship with them that I met their former staff worker. And um, he said he was Dan from InterVarsity. And I said, what's that? You've never heard of InterVarsity? You know, he was like almost offended. No, what did you do? <laughs> and so from there, uh, I was invited to speak at a chapter. I became a volunteer in 1996. So I've been involved loosely with InterVarsity for 20 years, and then in 2000, I joined the board, and in 2005, I transitioned into um, multi-ethnic ministries vice president role. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your, uh, so that, that's your InterVarsity story. Can you tell us some about your professional background? I think people might not know some of your ministry background, your academic background. Uh, we'd love to hear some of that from you. So I graduated from undergrad about 30 years ago, and my career life experience could be divided roughly in thirds. So the first nine or 10 years, I was in the corporate world, uh, majored in finance undergrad and have an MBA from Stanford, worked in business development, strategy, um, competitive intelligence work. Uh, from there, I was involved with this little community, met John Perkins, heard the CCDA vision, decided to do the three R's and quit my corporate job and moved into the community, much to my parents' chagrin. And um, so from there, I worked um, in outreach and community development. Uh, John Perkins says you're supposed to do that 15 years. After about 18 months, God said, your, your work here is finished. You're going to school. So I went to seminary uh, for three years, and then I served as an associate pastor in a church. So I did uh, corporate world, church, for that mid part, and then I've been at InterVarsity for about 12 years now. I didn't know about this competitive intelligence thing. You have to tell <laughs> me more about that someday. Uh, I did know about the finance thing. So anyone, any one of you here work with Project Flourish? If you need any extra help, we've got a uh, <laughs> competitive intelligence and finance expert here. Well, uh, one of the things I'm so excited about in this season for InterVarsity is the new People and Culture group and this ministry uh, department that we've set up uh, in your leadership of it. So People and Culture is a new thing. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you will do, what your team will be doing? So some about the vision of that. So um, I accepted this role in January of this year. And in reflecting on my InterVarsity experience when I was deciding whether to apply, I realized that because I had never been involved with a chapter, 
my real passion is staff. It's like I've been most influenced by alumni, by staff, and I see the role of people and culture really being one that allows us to foster um, a healthy organizational culture and also really to design a place where staff can flourish, where people are excited. I think often we look at the mission and we are wanting to see flourishing witnessing communities. And for me and others in my department, we want that flourishing to also flow out of our staff and out of our organizational culture. So as you think about that, uh, let's say in five to 10 years, as, you, as a result of the Ministry of People and Culture, so in five to 10 years, what do you hope to see? What do you think we will see as the, your team serves the movement? Uh, well, in looking at the three different components, so learning and talent is the department that most of you are aware of that's been up and going for about four years now. I think Kim and her team have done outstanding work in terms of staff director training. Uh, Neil is doing CSM competency training. So just a firm, solid foundation in terms of training, resourcing, and equipping staff. Also, they're doing great work in the area of change management, and we're we'll be doing more in terms of organizational health and change management. I think with spiritual foundations, Jason Jensen, who's on sabbatical, will be starting in August, but it's really looking across our ministries and saying, what kind of spiritual foundation do we want all of our staff to have? And if we think about spiritual formation and prayer, theological formation, um, our prayer lives, kind of not just for our, uh, CSMs on the field, but at IVP and our camps here at the NSC, we want flourishing staff in terms of spiritual roots. And then the diversity department, uh, ROM will be starting July 1, but Phil Bolig-Dyer has done great work. What does it mean to create this welcoming community? So if we're reaching every corner of every campus out in the field, how do we have a culture that is welcoming to people from many different places? And not only can we sustain and nourish them, but they can flourish and move up to every level of leadership and enterprise. Uh, it's so exciting. I think one of the things I appreciate about all those things she just shared is, uh, you know, we've been talking about in the NSC and, and in the field as well, accelerating mission. And so to invest in learning and talent, the development of our staff and their training, uh, the culture of our organization, to invest in spiritual foundations and diversity, those are all things that will accelerate mission on campus. So I'm really excited about that. Thank you for saying yes. Um, in terms of leadership and senior leadership, uh, you know, we, we all uh, want to continue growing in the journey and growing as a leader. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about what you're reading or what you're learning in this season. I think other folks may want to know that too, so can you share some about that? Uh, in preparation for my new role, I think I've been doing more reading around uh, organizational culture, culture change. And interestingly enough, it's also been going back to books that I've read before but seeing them in a different light. So one of the books that we used at our staff director retreat a couple weeks ago, and that's the picture from our staff director retreat, uh, we looked at Patrick Lencioni's book, uh, The Advantage, and so talks about uh, organizational health being the single greatest advantage for any ministry or company, and the six critical questions we began working on. Why do we exist? How do we behave? What do we do? How will we succeed? Uh, what is the most important thing right now, and who does what? So in addition to reading the book, it's like, do we have clarity as a team? If you ask any member of our team, how do we behave, would you get the same answer, right? So part of it is the organizational clarity uh, that we want, not only for us, but to shape our whole culture. And then also how we lead was a key part in terms of more corporate discernment, collaborative leadership, that sort of thing. So learning a lot about that. Um, also, um, there's another 
huge book, Edgar Schein, on culture. It was a gift from Tom. <laughs> I will be doing a book club and <laughs> working through that. Um, and then also, I'd say a lot of what I'm learning actually is taking more from life uh, as I'm caring for family members with significant health challenges. Uh, I have a mom who's 88 who has dementia. My husband was diagnosed with cancer last summer. And so a lot of my lessons have been, what does it look like to lead well while you're caring for family members with significant life challenge? And how does that work as a caregiver shape my leadership? Uh, what does it mean to lead with vulnerability and humility as you're dealing with real capacity constraints or needing to prioritize things? So a lot of life lessons right now. Well, you just shared um, some things about just, I think, give us a glimpse of what your, what are some of the challenges here. So you've got this new uh, people and culture line that you're trying to launch here, the uh, great vision for what it could be, uh, and then some of the burdens, some of the, some of the burdens you have at home as well, things that you're carrying. So we do want to pray for you, and I want to invite the whole fellowship to actually be in prayer for you. So can you share uh, one or two main things that we could be praying for? Um. Certainly, I think uh, one of the images that came out of our prayer retreat was this idea of the Holy Spirit as kind of the tuning fork and our team operating as a symphony uh, with each person. You know, you're the lead chair for violin or woodwinds or percussion, but how we really need to be attuned to this, the Holy Spirit and the conductor's baton. So praying that we would live into that in terms of our attentiveness to the Holy Spirit, our attentiveness to each other. Uh, also... Um, praying for our team as we have one department, Learning and Talent, that's well-defined and running, and we're kind of raising up these two new departments and figuring out how to work together, and then collectively, how are we serving the field in a way that brings joy and growth and not added complexity. So uh, just wisdom and discernment for us as we're doing that. Well, let me pray for you now. Lord, we're grateful for our sister Paula. Uh, thank you for her story, for the ways that you have uh, been preparing her and calling her to her work within a varsity and now into this new role as executive vice president of people and culture. And Lord, we lift up to you the, just the, uh, the desires and yearnings of the team as they seek to be a team that both honors you and loves you and one another well. Um, this image of becoming uh, more like a symphony that's in tune with the leading of the Holy Spirit. Lord, that is uh, our prayer for them as a team um, and the many things that they need to work out as they begin as a new team in terms of who will do what and the clarity that's needed to move forward towards accomplishing their vision. Um, so we pray for these early days and the wisdom that's needed. And Lord, uh, as, as Paula shared about challenges at home and thing, ways that she's trying to care for family and extended family, Lord, would you give her and um, abundance of your love to uh, pour out in all those that she cares about in her life. Lord, together as a movement, we say that we are committed to praying for her and that we love her and uh, care for her, Lord. So would you pour out your spirit upon her and her leadership in these days. And Lord, we pray now as she speaks to us during this chapel session uh, for the talk that she's prepared that you've given to her to share. Lord, um, be with her and uh, speak through her now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it is a real privilege to be here and to be with you today. And uh, it's also a privilege to speak in chapel. Uh, 
I love to preach but have not done so in an extended period. And uh, anytime you're standing before people with the word of God, offering some word for the audience, it is a humbling moment. And uh, when that word works best, it's actually God uh, challenging you and you're working through how that word uh, is made flesh kind of in your own life and sharing your lessons out of that. So today, I want to speak for a few minutes on uh, praying for eyes of faith. And uh, Andrew came up to me and he said, oh, you're preaching this morning. I said, it is not possible to preach in 15 minutes. <laughs> so we will, I will share some life lessons, and the Lord has challenged me to distill them in a meaningful way with minimal words. Uh, I am going to ask Mimi if she will read our passage, uh, which today is 2 Kings 6, uh, 8 through 17. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such, a, in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place, because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He, sur uh, he summoned his officers and demanded of them, Tell me, which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go, find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, no, my lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Amen. Now that is one of my favorite passages of Scripture, and it's probably one of the touchstone, touchstone passages that I've come back to again and again, both in life and in ministry and in leadership. Uh, one of the things I love about the passage is Elisha is this powerful uh, prophetic person in the text. Uh, he doesn't have an official organizational role, but he can hear from the Lord. So every time this king, the king of Aram, is about to launch an offensive against Israel, he'll call up the king. You should know. They're waiting for you over here. And so he's able to um, lead Israel, or working with the king, Israel has significant victory. And then they get so frustrated that you know, Aram decides to come after Elisha, not knowing that all these other times, you know, he knows where you are, so he, he knows that you're coming here as well, and there's this miraculous moment where the servant who is tempted to panic realizes, oh, okay, Elisha prays, open his eyes, and he sees uh, we're surrounded by the enemy, but the Lord's got them surrounded as well. And it's a powerful moment. Now, this passage in this particular prayer for me, praying for eyes of faith in particular, dates back to winter quarter 1991. I'm in the first year of my MBA program at Stanford. Uh, I was invited to join a Bible study. 
Uh, I did not know, but there was an InterVarsity grad chapter across campus that I'd never heard of, so I never went. Uh, there was also a uh, Graduate School of Business Fellowship that was at Stanford. No one invited me to that, so I wasn't going to that one either. And there was a person who was, uh, he was preceded me in the MBA program, and uh, he went on from there to do a second master's in engineering, and he gathered a group of black students, said, let's have a Bible study. He invited some other people um, from the community, from a small church that later I would join, and we began to study scripture. And uh, I grew up in the church, uh, knew God, had kind of drifted away, undergrad, come back, and at this point, I'm excited about my faith, but really not sure how faith and this MBA degree go together in terms of my, um, my life. So we're studying for our finance midterms, um, and then some of the people in the finance group, in, in my study group, are also in the Bible study. So we had a, a, a session for Bible study. I went home. I'm reading in my Bible. I read this passage. And as I'm reading the passage, what jumps out at me is oh, eyes of faith, eyes of faith. And then in my mind, I'm thinking, we have this midterm tomorrow. We need the eyes of faith. So I jump up out of my room. It's probably maybe 6 in the evening. And I run to our campus. I'm trying to track down people who are in my study group. And I, there were three of us studying. So I found, I read this passage. We need the eyes of faith as we're studying for our midterm. They're looking at me like, Paula, what are you talking about? And I'm like, I'm telling you, it's the eyes of faith. So then I run. I find the other person. I'm reading this passage. I believe God wants us to pray for the eyes of faith. They're like, okay, Paula. So, they're, so later that night, we're studying. We probably study till 2 in the morning. The finance midterm is the next day, so we go in, we're taking the midterm, and our Bible study teacher had said, you know, when you go in the test, you need to go in with confidence, you need to pray, ask God to bring things back to your remembrance, but if you didn't study, he's not going to have anything to bring back to your remembrance, so you have to actually study, and then, you know, God is going to give you success on the test. So I went in, I said my prayer, I'm working on the test, and I get stuck. So there's maybe 15 minutes left to the test, I'm kind of looking like, okay. And then all of a sudden, it strikes me, the eyes of faith. So I close my eyes, and I say, Lord, would you give me the eyes of faith? And I open my eyes, and it was a miracle. I knew how to do every problem on the test. It was like a window shade went up, and I had perfect understanding. And so I am scribbling on the paper as fast as I can, because all of a sudden, I knew all the answers. And I'm also crying, hallelujah, thank you, God, thank you, God. People look at me like, what is going on? <laughs> So for the last 15 minutes of the test, I am sobbing, I am writing as fast as I can, and I hear the Holy Spirit say, I'm going to give you 30 extra points on this test because you believe me. So I get out of the test, my friends rush over like, what is wrong with you? Why are you crying? I said, I told you, it is the eyes of faith. So I, and then sure enough, we get our test back, I had about 30 points higher than them, and they're like, you were holding out on us. We all studied together, and it's like, I'm telling you, it was the eyes of faith. Now I have to say... That never happened again in any other <laughs> test or paper that I did at Stanford. Over the course of my life, it did happen three other times in different spaces and contexts, but I think I left the test that day thinking, wow, God, there is something to faith and praying for faith. And it wasn't a magic formula that I could speak and, you know, I realized, oh, you're not intending to make me, like, more brilliant, even though you could actually do that. You're just trying to teach me something about faith and how it works. Now, earlier this month, as I've entered this job and been praying and working on VP hires and what is the vision for this team, 
this scripture verse came back to mind. And I realized, ah, once again, you're calling me back to this passage, and there's something you want me to see as I'm moving to the next level of leadership, as I'm thinking about faith, as I'm thinking about how faith integrates uh, with business and the work of leadership. And it's been a pretty profound um, moment to come back to this passage, having looked at it again and again, and each time you see something different. Now, one of the things in both the passage uh, as well as in my uh, midterm uh, story, uh, I think one of the principles is that here sight doesn't really equal reality, right? So as, the, as Elisha's servant in the, in the text looks and sees them surrounded, his temptation is to panic, we're going to die, they're going to kill us, and Elisha just calmly says, Elisha actually doesn't say anything to his servant. He says, Lord, open his eyes so that he can see. So there was a sense of the situation we're in, but the reality was actually bigger than what they could see with their natural eyes. And I think often for us, it's similar. We're in, we're in a situation, we're tempted to react based on what we see, what we observe, how we feel. I mean, we're manuscript people, right? So observations is usually the first thing we're looking at, both in the text or as we're looking at, um, you know, just encountering people in situations. And so I think one of the lessons I've learned is that sense of what's happening is larger or bigger than what I could see. And a nice image for that, you may have seen this before, is the image of this iceberg, right? And so there's kind of what you can see, and then there's all these things happening below the water. So I think as people who are called to be people of faith, so you know, in this case I was praying for faith, as those of us who are following Christ and working in this ministry, I think God wants all of us to be people of faith. There's the reality that what we see doesn't define everything that's happening. Right? And I think you, we could look at that in terms of our mission on campus. Uh, we could look at that in terms of, you, if you think of your personal life, so when you're, let's say you're entering a new relationship. You meet this person and they look wonderful. And you might ask, what's happening below the water? Or if you're joining a new team, if you're married and you're figuring out what marriage looks like, there's how you're interacting, there's things that are happening below the waterline. And I don't know if any of you have read Pete Scazzaro, The Emotionally Healthy Leader. This is often an image he uses when we look at our own lives, right? Because there's a way we present when I look in the mirror, you can see yourself. But then each of us also have our own below the waterline issues shape how we see things, how we interpret reality. And so we always want to be aware that things aren't always just as they seem. There was a song back in the 70s that said, what you see is what you get. It's like, well, no, sometimes it's not just what you see. Right? Sometimes there's more happening than what you can see. Now, in addition to sight not, not equaling reality, uh, another point is the importance of belief. So in Proverbs 8, wisdom is personified as a woman. For the sake of my talk, belief is personified by this young brother here wearing a shirt that says belief. And belief is really important as we think about our work, our lives, what it means to follow Jesus. And I would argue that, uh, well, the point I'll make first is that belief matters what you believe when you're entering a situation and looking at that situation, what you believe about that situation, what you believe about yourself, 
what you believe about God. Uh, all of those things are important as you're navigating life. And I would argue that sometimes what we believe can be even more important than what we see. And I'm going to ask Miriam, Mimi, to read a second scripture for us. Uh, selections from Numbers 13. The Lord said to Moses, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each of their ancestral tribes you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, and said to them, Go up there into the Negev, and go up into the hill country, and see what the land is like, and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land they live in is good or bad, and whether the towns that they live in are unwalled or fortified, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be bold and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now it was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob near Leboma. Sorry. Leboma. <laughs> Should have read through this once before. Uh, they went up into the Negev and came to Hebron. Uh, and Iman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the Anakites, there were, were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the Wadi Ishol and cut down from there a branch from a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Wadi Ishol because the cluster that the Israelites cut down from there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the Israelites in the wilderness of Paran at Kedesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Yet the people who live in the land are strong, and the towns are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the, and the Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live by the sea along, and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against this people, for they are stronger than we. So they brought to the Israelites an unfavorable report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land that we have gone through as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great size. There we saw the Nephilim, the Anakites, came from Nephilim, and to ourselves we seemed like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. So in this case, it's a popular story we look at all the time in Scripture. Right? God's promised them this amazing land he's giving them. In verse 1, Mo he tells Moses, send some people out to check out the land I am giving you. So he sends them out. They spend 40 days tasting fruit, exploring. They come back, and God didn't ask them to go out and explore to see if they could occupy it. Right? He said, go see what I'm giving. They came back and said, or 10 of them, there's no way we can do this. And so here's a case where belief matters. 10 came back with an unfavorable, they all saw the same thing, right? 
10 of them came back with an unfavorable report. There's no way we could do it. Caleb says, hey, we should go up at once because the Lord is giving. So it wasn't just what he saw, but it was what he believed about the Lord giving them the land. But because in this case, majority rules, right? Ten gave the unfavorable report, the people's heart melted, and none of them got in at that point. God says, you don't think you can go? You're right. None of you are going. You're all going to drop here in the desert. I'm going to raise up your children and take them in. And the only two who gets in from that original group are Joshua and Caleb. So here's a prime example of when belief really matters. And I think it's not just a question of scripture. I remember a couple years ago, we were at a team meeting. We were working uh, on a conference, and I decided at the end to go out and walk the prayer labyrinth to kind of debrief the day, to pray, to check in with the Lord. God's like, that's great. You did strength finders. That's good. You did good work here. Your people produced. By the way, what are you believing me for? What are you asking me to do for you? So I went back to my team. It's like, what are we believing God for? Yes, we can do our strategic plans. We can map our vision. But at the end of the day, what is it that we believe? And so I think all of us can ask ourselves that same question in life, in your work, for your team, for InterVarsity as a whole. What is it that we're believing for? Because all of those things help to shape our posture of faith, our prayers, and I think God is calling us to a higher place in terms of what we're believing, to be able to clarify or articulate, God, this is what we're believing you for. This is what we're asking you to do for us. This is what we'd love for you to do. This is what we're believing for the NSC. This is what we're believing for our country. You know, I'm married to uh, a Trinidadian, and his sister's visiting for three weeks, so she came up, I'm praying for your, your country. <laughs> Are you praying for your country? But just even that sense of our belief, our belief matters. So we're back to, again, the part of faith, about having eyes of faith. And uh, one of the truths is that our faith is going to be tested. And in this case, in the case of uh, Numbers 13, uh, their faith was tested, right? God's made them this promise. They go in, and in that case, you know, their faith. I know this is often a passage that we use uh, for our mission on campus, right? People spying out the land. You're going to a campus. You're going to spy out the land and walk the property and pray and see where God is doing mission for opportunity. I remember I was flying home from a meeting. This is actually going back to my prior slide, but I'm going to go back for just a second. And I remember as the plane was landing in the city for the meeting I was going to, God reminded me uh, that instead of... Um, like, what they saw when they looked at Numbers 13 was they focused on the giants in the walled cities. And the Lord brought my mind back to Caleb. And he said, I'm looking for people who can see opportunity. They saw walled cities and giants. Caleb saw the milk and honey. And so I think even as we're thinking about belief, as we're thinking about faith, there's a question of what do we see and what do we believe. Now, in terms of our faith being tested, uh, I think there's this... Um, I think one of the things I've learned is as you're growing in life and as we're growing both in ministry but in our walk with the Lord, you grow to a certain level of faith, but even at that new level, there are always new tests uh, and opportunities to strengthen your faith. And, you know, Scripture says faith comes by hearing, hearing comes by the Word of God, 
So as people of manuscript, right, word is plentiful in InterVarsity. So hopefully we're praying that that translates to faith being plentiful in InterVarsity. Uh, but one of, the, one of the greatest tests of my faith came earlier this year. And I dare not say I've passed because I'm still in the middle. Uh, my husband had gone through six months of chemo. Uh, we were praying and believing. He, it was kind of a surprise, his diagnosis. And then when we finally got to Stanford, they said it's stage four. There's no prognosis. Um, all we can say is it depends on how well he responds to this chemo treatment that he was on. So after about six months and each week saying, oh, this is good, this is good, they said, um, actually, he's not a high responder for this particular drug. And we're going to have to try a clinical trial to see if we can get a better result. So he was going to have to do a three-week washout period before he could start the trial. So I said, honey, go home and see your mama. Go be with your people, eat your food, because we're not sure how long it'll be before you can go back to Trinidad. And while he was gone, I put him on the plane. He flew off. I was smiling. And then I went back home and started grieving and praying in my living room and saying, okay, God, I need you to say something to me. And as I'm weeping, I remember asking God, Lord, if I'm crying, does that mean I don't have faith? And so as I'm waiting and crying, the Lord gives me two verses. One verse was Psalm 62, 8, which says, you know, trust in the Lord and pour out your heart to him. I sense God saying, oh, yeah, pour out your heart. That's cool. I want your tears. Pour out your heart to me. The second verse he gave me was Romans 4, 13, 20 through 25. It's about the story of Abraham and God's promise to Abraham. And it says, uh, for the promise that Abraham would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Therefore, faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, the words it was reckoned to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was handed over to death for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. So that was a very long and meaty passage. The one thing I would focus on that stood out for me that day was nothing made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God. And because I grew up in a, in a conservative Baptist church and we read King James Version, some things only sound right in the King James. So in the King James, it says, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. And so I heard God say in the same voice, pour out your heart, and I do not want you to stagger at the promise of God. And in this, in this case, the promise that God had made to us when we got married is that we would get married and do ministry together. And so that's kind of what I've been holding in this season as I'm navigating work, life, and a few other things. Now, coming to today in this particular message, I went back to this passage about Elisha and the servant. And I think early, back in 1991, I focused on the servant and the, the miracle of his eyes being opened and how great that was. Um, and that was pretty, I was like, oh, I want my eyes to be open. Then in another part of the passage, I went back at a later point in life, I think I went back and focused on Elisha and his prophetic gifts and what it meant to lead out of those gifts and be with strength. And as I prayed and prepared for this today, the Lord said, Paula, the who is always greater than the what. 
And so this time, when I looked at the passage, I focused on God. It's like, who you're praying to is always greater than what you're praying about or what you're believing for. And I want you to focus on me. I'm greater than cancer. You praying for me to heal him? or whatever the situation. So God, in this case, called me to not look at just what I'm believing or what I see, but to focus on the who. And there's a passage in uh, Hebrews 11 that says, Moses persevered because he saw him who was invisible. And so I think in this season, it's not only looking out and saying, what do we see, what are we believing for, but it's really keeping our eye on God. Saying, God, what do you see? What do you want me to see in this situation? Open my eyes so that I can see what you would have me to see. Uh, because at the end of the day, uh, as Christians, there's a passage that says in 2 Corinthians, we walk by faith and not by sight. And so I think there's times when it gets scary, you feel like you can't see anything. Oh, I prayed, Lord, nothing happened. You didn't say anything. Okay, well, follow me. Focus on me. Uh, there's a passage in Isaiah 42, one of my favorite scriptures that says, God says, I will lead the blind along ways they have not known. Along unfamiliar passages, paths, I will guide them, and I will make the dark places light and the rough places smooth. This is what I will do. I will not forsake them. So at the end of the day, for God, it doesn't matter what you can see. It's are you holding his hand? Are you allowing him to guide you? So let us pray, because my time has come. Lord, we are grateful for this time in your word. I'm grateful for the years of faith and journey and what you have shown me, uh, that sight does not equal reality, that belief matters, that our faith will be tested, that the who is always greater than the what. And I pray that on today, you would touch every person in this place and you would call us to a greater awareness of you a greater awareness of the strength of our faith or the need to have strong faith, and that we would experience you working through our lives uh, in ways that we can both see and not see, but we can trust you, the Lord, who are faithful. And we commit this day and our lives uh, afresh to your mission. In Jesus' name, amen.